Ezekiel chapter 24. Ezekiel chapter 24, verses 15 through 27 is where we're going to be tonight. It says, The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, behold, I'm about to take the delight of your eyes away from you at a stroke. Yet you shall not mourn or weep, nor shall your tears run down. Sigh, but not aloud. Make no mourning for the dead. Bind on your turban and put on your shoes. Put your shoes on your feet. Do not cover your lip, nor eat the bread of men. So I spoke to the people in the morning, and at evening my wife died. And on the next morning I did as I was commanded. And the people said to me, Will you not tell us what these things mean for us, that you are acting thus? Then I said to them, The word of the Lord came to me. Say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will profane my sanctuary, the pride of your power, the delight of your eyes, and the yearning of your soul, and your sons and your daughters whom you left behind shall fall by the sword. And you shall do as I have done. You shall not cover your lips, nor eat the bread of men. Your turbans shall be on your heads and your shoes on your feet. And you shall not mourn or weep, but you shall rot away in your iniquities and groan to one another. Thus shall Ezekiel be assigned to you. According to all that he has done, you shall do. When this comes, then you will know that I am the Lord. As for you, son of man... Surely on the day when I take from them their stronghold, their joy and glory, the delight of their eyes and their soul's desire, and also their sons and daughters, on that day a fugitive will come to you to report to you the news. On that day your mouth will be opened to the fugitive, and you shall speak and no longer be mute. So you will be assigned to them, and they will know that I am the Lord. Now, folks, i got to be honest with you. I've not been looking forward to this section of the study because just personally, I can't imagine God saying to me what he said to Ezekiel. He said to Ezekiel, I'm going to take away the desire, the light of your eyes at a stroke all at once. And then what happens? His wife dies. And it's obvious that he had a good relationship with his wife and loved her. But God said, for the purposes that I want to accomplish and because of what I'm trying to accomplish through your life and the ministry I've called you to as a prophet... I'm going to take your wife, and you can't mourn. You're not allowed to mourn. Have any of you ever really stopped and thought about how tough it was to be a prophet? Prophets were called to some very hard ministries. You got Hosea being told that he was to marry a prostitute. And he then was told, oh, by the way, she's going to then go and be unfaithful to you and make babies with somebody else. But then you're to go and buy her back. Isaiah was told that he was to go naked for three years to illustrate the, their captivity and the fact that they were going to be taken away naked. John the Baptist, as you know, lived out in the wilderness and ate locusts and wild honey and didn't have fancy clothes. A part and a large part of what God has called me to in the ministry that he's called me to is to be a prophet as well. As you know, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 through 16, he gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers. And even though I've pastored churches, even though I've been in the pastoral ministry for many, many years, even though I've been preaching the word of God for over 30 years, the biggest call on my life is to be prophet. Again, I've pastored but I don't have shepherding gifts. I don't have 
a call on my life where I would be comfortable staying at one church for a long period of time and shepherding people through a long relationship. The call on my life is to speak and to preach and to teach the Word of God with authority. And at the same time, I'm more comfortable in the apostle type, moving around type of a ministry. And that's those together, apostle slash prophet. Prophet is the call on my life. Have I been a pastor? Yes. But at the same time, the biggest thing that God ever did through me in my pastorates was preaching and teaching the Word of God. And I also know that because of that, a big part of what God's going to ask me to do is to say things that are not going to be well received at times. And I'll be honest with you, folks, there have been pastors that have been fired for bringing me in over the last 11 years that I have been in. Twice in the 11 years that I've been traveling and speaking, they have fired a pastor for bringing me to the church because they didn't like what God said through me while I was there. But at the same time, Ezekiel, in the call on his life, was told, here's what I want you, I'm, I'm going to do. God says, I'm going to take your wife. The delight of your eyes, I'm going to take her. I'm going to take her all at once. But you're not allowed to mourn. Then after he explains to the people, Ezekiel is going to have to then explain to the people why, and we'll get to that in a little bit. After he explains to the people why he isn't grieving outwardly, he will be struck mute again by God until someone comes with the news that the city and the temple have been destroyed. If you remember from our study last week, we saw at the beginning of chapter 24, on that very day, the siege, the third siege, the third time attack of, of, of the Babylonians against the city of Jerusalem had begun. And if you remember, that siege lasted for 18 months. And Ezekiel's told that once you tell, explain to everybody why you're not grieving, from that day until the, the word comes from a fugitive, that the city and the temple have been destroyed. Until that day, you're going to be struck mute, and you won't be able to preach or speak to these people. Look at Ezekiel 24. Look at verses 25 and 27. through 27. As it says, For you, son of man, surely on the day when I take from them their stronghold, their joy and glory, and the delight of their eyes, and their soul's desire, and also their sons and daughters, on that day a fugitive will come to you to report to you the news. On that day your mouth will be open to the fugitive, and you shall speak and no longer be mute. So you'll be assigned to them and they'll know that I'm the Lord. So from the day that this, his wife dies until the day that they find that the temple was ultimately destroyed and the city was taken 18 months later, Ezekiel's not allowed to speak. Go to Ezekiel 33. Look at verses 21 and 22. Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 21. It says, in the twelfth year of our exile, in the tenth month, and on the fifth day of the month, a fugitive from Jerusalem came to me and said, the city has been struck down. Now the hand of the Lord had been upon me the evening before the fugitive came. And he had opened my mouth by the time the man came to me in the morning. So my mouth was opened, and I was no longer mute. So we see that it came true what God said was going to happen. From that time that his wife dies, and he explains why he's not grieving, until the day that the temple is destroyed and the news comes, that Isaiah, I'm sorry, not Isaiah, Ezekiel is not allowed to speak. Now, I said earlier, you might not have caught it, I said he'll be struck mute again. I don't know if you guys remember, but earlier in our study, go with me back to chapter 3. Early in our study, he had already been struck mute once by God. Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 26 and 27. And I will make your tongue cling to the roof of your mouth so that you shall be mute and unable to reprove them for their rebellious house. But when I speak with you, 
I'll open your mouth, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God. He who will hear, let him hear. He who will refuse to hear, let him refuse for their rebellious house. So as God was using him to speak to the people and to rebuke them and to show them that what their, their sinfulness and their need for repentance, there would be periods that God would just strike him mutes where he couldn't speak. And then when God chose, he would open his mouth again. Now, I don't have time to go into the story. Uh, maybe later on another time, I can tell you. But I actually have had this happen to me by God. Where I was dealing with a situation and the preacher in me wanted to preach. And God literally struck me mute and I could not speak. In that instance, it was a holy moment in which God didn't need Jim Johnson to say anything. God was speaking well enough himself and he shut my mouth so that I couldn't mess it up. <laughs> but I've experienced this where God has actually made it so I could not speak until it was time. And then he released me. Ezekiel now is going to be struck mute for 18 months. Now, don't think that he's not doing anything for the 18 months. As you're going to see later on in our study, during the time that Ezekiel's mute and not speaking to the Israelites, he compiles prophecies against the Gentile nations, foretelling of God's coming judgment on them too. Chapters 25 and following are you're going to see the prophecies against Ammon and the prophecies against Edom and Philistia and against Tyre and so on. Actually, during that time, and we'll break down the timeline of all that stuff, Ezekiel actually he's writing down these prophecies that God gives him about the coming judgment on the Gentile nations. In our study of Ezekiel, we've been watching it up to this point, all the warnings of God's judgment on Jerusalem and on the, city, uh, sorry, the people of Judah and the destruction of the temple and all that. We've seen that God's warning of that coming judgment. But you're going to notice that everything changes from chapter 24 on. From this point on, there's no more warnings. It's because the judgment has come. And then in chapter 25 and following, we're going to see how God says, look, I'm not only going to purify my people and judge them because of their sin, the nations of the world are going to be judged as well. And I want you to pay close attention when we get to chapter 25 next time we get together and following, because you're going to see a parallel between chapters 25 and following and Jeremiah as well, where he's given similar prophecies. And folks, I believe without question, those prophecies are still yet to be fulfilled, most of them. Parts of them were fulfilled in the, around the time of the writings, but most of the prophecies haven't yet been fulfilled. And we're going to be seeing what is coming on the nations around Israel and the enemies of Israel. And when he judges the world, when Jesus comes back, and all during the tribulation period, we're going to be reading about things that are going to happen. And then after we see the judgment of the nations and what God's going to do to the Gentile nations, we're going to have a lot of fun in our Ezekiel studies. You're going to see as God starts talking about the millennial kingdom and where the land is going to be distributed and who's going to be where and what the temple's going to look like and all these things. The, the whole tone of Ezekiel changes from this point on. It's no longer against Israel after chapter 24. It's against the Gentile nations. And then there's a little bit of hope because of God's going to finish purifying Israel and finish all the stuff that he's promised. So if you've hung on this long, we start to have a little bit more fun. Yet at the same time, it won't be a lot of fun to read about what's going to happen to the Gentile nations. What they have coming to them won't be very much fun either. But that's going to happen next time we get together when we get to chapter 25. For tonight, let's take some time to pull out some of the valuable and interesting nuggets, as I put in my notes here, from our verses for tonight. Let's, let's take a look at some of the interesting stuff. It's just a little bit of a fun study. Some of these things that you read them without studying them, you probably would go, what does that mean? I'm not even sure. And then we just move on. I want to show you where this all came from. 
See, God is very specific as to what Ezekiel is not allowed to do in his period of personal grief. Did you notice how specific God was? He didn't just say, don't grieve. He specifically said how he was not to grieve. First, he cannot mourn or weep. He was not allowed to make any outward weeping, any outward noise. He said, you can sigh, but inwardly. You're not allowed to weep or wail or mourn. Now, the reason is, for the Jewish culture, that was a major part of how they dealt with death. Let me show you a couple examples. Go to Mark chapter 5. Look at verses 21 through 24, and then we're going to jump to verses 35 and following. Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 21. It says, And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet. And he implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. We're jumping over the section that talks about the woman who comes and touches him during that time and is healed of her bleeding. But jump to verse 35. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha, kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this. And he told them to give her something to eat. So here, this girl has just died. And there's already a group of people all weeping and wailing around. There actually were professional mourners. The Jewish people had professional mourners. That's what they did. And so whenever someone died, they felt they needed to just help the family, release their grief, And weep and wail and moan and woe is me. Well, go to Acts chapter 9. Let me show you another example. Look at verses 36 through 43. It says, Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room, and all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she got up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. And then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. So here we see Peter doing exactly what Jesus did earlier. Remember, Jesus had taken with him Peter and James and John. And they were with him when Jesus did that with Jairus' daughter. But again, there were people there weeping and mourning her, her death. And so in the Jewish culture... When someone died, there was always weeping, wailing, and a crowd of people that would do it. 
But he's told when your wife dies, you make no outward acknowledgement of it. That would get their attention. He's also told that he's to keep his turban on his head and his shoes on his feet. Go to Leviticus chapter 10. Leviticus chapter 10. And look at verses 1 through 7. It says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. In other words, Aaron's sons have just been killed because they did something they weren't supposed to do at the tabernacle, and he doesn't speak. And Moses called Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Uzziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, so these are the cousins of these guys that were killed, and he said, said to them, Come near, carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary and out of the camp. So they came near and carried them in their coats out of the camp, as Moses had said. And Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons, Do not let the hair of your heads hang loose, and do not tear your clothes, lest you die, and wrath come upon all the congregation. But let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning of the Lord is kindled. And do not go outside the entrance of the tent of the meeting, lest you die, for the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. So the, the, Aaron's not allowed to mourn his son's death. The rest of the people can, but because Aaron's there at the temple, or the tabernacle at this time, he's not allowed to mourn his son's death. Now we're going to get to why in a little bit. The same reason I believe that he's, Aaron's told he's not allowed to grieve is your, I'm going to show you later on why I believe the nation of Israel is not allowed to grieve. But look at what he's told. He said, don't let the, your hair hang loose. In other words, keep your hat on your head. Because again, part of the weeping and the wailing was to pull off their clothes. They would tear their clothes. They would pull their hat off. They would let their hair fall. They would take their shoes off their feet. I don't have time to take you there, but there's a story about how David goes mourning barefoot up the hill of Mount of Olives. It was a sign of your grief, not just the weeping and the wailing and the moaning, but to tear off your hat and to tear your clothes and to take your shoes off. In other words, I'm undone right now. I'm undone. I don't care what I look like. I don't care what people think about me. I'm undone. Ezekiel's told, you keep your hat on your head. He was also told not to cover his lip. You're in chapter 10 of Leviticus. Go to chapter 13. All this stuff, by the way, is in the scriptures. I hope by the end of this study, you all get so excited about the fact that the word speaks about itself all the time. I've, I was telling my wife just the other day, the more I study the scriptures, the more I come to realize nothing's there by itself. There's always another place that it's been spoken about. The scripture speaks of itself all the time. And in chapter 13, look at verses 45 and 46. It says, the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose. See, so this person's supposed to act like I'm, woe is me. And he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. 
He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. So here, when this person has got leprosy, they were to tear their clothes, let their hair hang loose, and they were to cry out unclean. But when they did it, they were to cover their upper lip. Have you ever been eating something and someone asked you a question and you started to speak? What do we automatically do? We do this, don't we? we? We cover our mouths. Why are you doing that? You're showing a little bit of shame, right? Pardon me, I'm talking with my mouth full. And that was a part of what they would do as well. They would cover their upper lip. He's told you're not to cover your upper lip. Go to Micah chapter 3. Micah chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. Therefore it shall be night to you without vision, and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets, and the day shall be black over them, and seers shall be disgraced, and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips." For there is no answer from God. As God's bringing this judgment on the false prophets and the fact that they're only preaching for, to the people that give them stuff and ignoring, bringing bad stuff against the people that don't pay them, on the day I judge them, they're going to be all ashamed and they're going to cover their lips. So when you covered your lips, it was a sign of shame. Ezekiel's told, don't weep or wail or moan out loud. Keep your head and your feet covered and don't cover your lip. Don't do all the common signs of mourning. There's another one. If you remember back in Ezekiel 24, he was told he wasn't to eat the bread of men. Now, if you read it fast, it sounds like he wasn't allowed to eat. But that's not what it's saying. It's not saying you're not allowed to eat. He wasn't allowed to eat the bread of men. Now, let me help you out with this. This cultural thing that the Jewish people did, which I'm going to show you. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 16, and I'll show you some of it. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 16 is the place where we'll, we'll show you a picture of this. This cultural Jewish thing we've carried over into the Baptist church because we like it and it involves food. What do people do nowadays when somebody dies? They bring them food, don't they? They bring them meals. They bring them food. It's the first thing. That's the, actually from the scriptures, the one of the things we've carried over. We don't want to tear our clothes, you know. We don't want to do all the other stuff, but the eating the bread of men, it's from the scriptures. Jeremiah chapter 16, look at verses 5 through 9. For thus says the Lord, do not enter the house of mourning or go to lament or grieve for them. For I have taken away my peace from this people. My steadfast love and mercy declares the Lord, both great and small shall die in this land. They shall not be buried and no one shall lament for them or cut himself or make himself bald to them. No one shall break, the, break bread for the mourner to comfort him for the dead or nor shall anyone give him the cup of consolation to drink for his father or his mother. You shall not go into the house of feasting to sit with them to eat and drink. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will silence in this place before your eyes, and in your days the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of bridegroom and the voice of the bride. So is God's bringing a warning of judgment again, and the fact that there's going to be judgment on the nation of Israel, again, again he's telling them, you're not allowed to mourn the regular mourning ways, and you're not allowed to eat what people are going to bring to you. Why? Well, we're not yet. I'm not going to answer that question yet. So Ezekiel's wife dies instantly. 
and immediately Ezekiel obeys the Lord, and he goes through none of the common practices of grieving. He's silent. He doesn't, he doesn't speak about it. Doesn't act like it even happened. Everybody knows that his wife's died. They're expecting now the common, woe is me. Life is so awful. They're expecting to join with him in this, and he doesn't do it. Keeps his hat on his head, shoes on his feet. If they brought him food, he doesn't eat it. And what do you think the reaction of the people is going to be? Why? The same question we've just been asking. Why? Why are you doing this? We'll go back to Ezekiel chapter 24. Look at verse 19. And the people said to me, will you not tell us what these things mean for us that you're acting this way? Then I said to them, the word of the Lord came to me. Say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will profane my sanctuary, the pride of your power, the delight of your eyes and the yearning of your soul and your sons and your daughters whom you left behind. Those are the ones that are still in Jerusalem shall fall by the sword and you shall do as I have done. In other words, when my temple is destroyed and Jerusalem is destroyed and your sons and daughters are all killed, you guys, God says you have to do the same thing that I've just done. You shall not cover your lips, nor eat the bread of men. Your turbans shall stay on your heads, and your shoes on your feet, and you shall not mourn or weep. But you shall rot away in your iniquities and groan to one another. Thus shall Ezekiel be assigned to you according to all that he has done you shall do. And when this comes, then you will know that I am the Lord God. So now we can answer the question. Why? Why were they to not grieve outwardly? I think there's a couple, maybe three reasons. I'm going to touch on two, maybe a third. The first one is real simple. I think that there are sometimes a, there's sometimes a grief that's even too deep for normal, regular ways of expressing grief. You understand what I'm saying? There sometimes comes a, deep, a, a grief that's so deep, the regular ways of expressing your emotion or your grief won't work. But that's only a small reason why. And I'm going to show you scripturally why I think the second one I think is the biggest reason. How silly to grieve and wail like something horrible had happened when God had been warning them for years and since they rejected his warnings they had brought this on themselves. If you've noticed the tone in all of the places that I've shown you in the scriptures already where Aaron's sons do what they were told not to do and when God's warning through Jeremiah, look, I don't want you to grieve or mourn. I'm going to be bringing a judgment on it. And they brought it on themselves. And in this place, how silly would it be for the Jews when they hear that the temple's been destroyed and the city of Jerusalem has been, been destroyed for them to go, oh, this is so horrible. This is so bad. Let's tear our clothes. Let's pull off our hats. Let's go through all this regular mourning. Woe is us. Kind of silly, isn't it? When God's been telling them all along, this is what's going to happen. You're getting what I warned you and I tried to keep from happening. It's kind of foolish for you to even go through the mourning practices. You're not to do it. Yes, ma'am. The difference between mourning and, and, and grief that we're talking about here versus sorrow. You know, I'm so sorrowful for... When you say sorrow, if it's tied to repentance, yes. I think there are people that have sorrow but no repentance. 
So if you're meaning sorrow tied to repentance, yes. And I think it, that's part of what God's goal is. I think that's a big part of what God's goal is. But there's also a clue in our passage to something God said a long time ago. Look over again at verse, um, we'll start in verse 23. Your turban shall be on your heads and your shoes on your feet. You shall not mourn or weep, but you shall rot away in your iniquities and groan to one another. Don't miss that. Remember, I've been saying to you over and over and over. You'd be hard pressed to find anything in the Bible that wasn't already written somewhere else. And when God says to them through Ezekiel, you're going to rot away in your iniquities and groan to one another. I started to dive and think, okay, there's, there's a reason why he words that. And guess what, folks? Go with me back to Leviticus chapter 26. Well, way, way back in our study, we spent a couple of, of, of our studies in chapter 26, where God had gone through the whole practice of warning them in Leviticus 26. Long before all this happened, he'd warned them, if you do this, then, then this is going to happen. Remember how we looked at the fact that he said, you're going to, because of your sin, I'm going to just keep doubling what I do to you over and over, over and over and over, and you're going to eat your children, and you're going to starve, and you're going to be grasping for water, and all those things. In chapter 26, I don't know about you, I got it all marked up because we dove into that chapter quite a bit. Well, look in chapter 26, verses 31 through 39, at what God had said way back when the nation of Israel was coming out of Egypt. They're in the wilderness. As they're about to come into the promised land, God warned them. And this is what he says in verses 31 and following. And he's been, this is what he's in the middle of saying, what he's going to do if they turn their back on him and worship idols. He says, I'll destroy your high places. Sorry, verse 31. I'll lay your cities waste, and I'll make your sanctuaries desolate, and I will not smell your pleasing aromas. I myself will devastate the land so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it. And I will scatter you among the nations, and I will unsheathe the sword after you, and your land shall be a desolation, and your cities shall be a waste. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate while you are in your enemy's land. And then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall have rest, the rest that it did not have on your Sabbaths when you were dwelling in it. And as for those of you who are left, I will send faintness into their hearts in the lands of their enemies. The sound of a driven leaf shall put them to flight, and they shall flee as one flees from the sword, and they shall fall when none pursues. And they shall stumble all over one another as if to escape a sword, though none pursues. And you shall have no power to stand before your enemies. And you shall perish among the nations. And the land of your enemies shall eat you up. And those of you who are left shall rot away in your enemies' lands because of their iniquity. And also because of the iniquities of their fathers, they shall rot away like them. That sound familiar? When God through Ezekiel said, you're going to rot away in your iniquities... He was quoting as Leviticus chapter, 30, chapter 26. God had told them way back, because of this, I'm going to do all this stuff. I'm going to destroy your cities. I'm going to destroy their temple. And I'm going to lay the land waste. And those of you that even survive are going to rot away because of your sin in the land that you're in. In other words, what did Ezekiel say? You're going to rot away in your sin and groan to one another. And this is exactly what you were bringing out, Sheila. They were to say to one another, we brought this on ourselves. It's because of what we've done. And then what does God say? Go back to Ezekiel 24, look at verse 24. And when this comes, 
you will know that I am the Lord God. This wasn't to be a time of sorrow and mourning and weeping because they had brought it on themselves. And this was to be a time of real repentance where they actually say, God's God. And everything he said he would do, he did. And the reason this happened is because we were in the wrong. Does that not sound familiar? Does anybody, can anybody remember the end of last week's study? Remember the two thieves were making fun of Jesus? But one of them changed his mind? What, was, what were his words? When he rebuked the other thief, what did he say? We're getting what we deserve. This man has done nothing wrong. But what was his attitude? True repentance. I got to be honest with you folks. I've heard too many Christians over the years say, well, I think God was a little too hard on them. We don't really understand true repentance. I don't know if we fully understand a real understanding of the depth of our sin. Because the Bible shows that when we truly understand the depth of our sin, it makes it easier for us to worship and to love the Lord. Because he who loves much, sorry, he who's been forgiven much, loves much. We've all been forgiven much, but unfortunately a lot of us don't think we've been forgiven as much as maybe we should. The reason why they're told not to mourn, first off, it'd be stupid. They'd look silly. They'd act like, woe is me, because they brought them on themselves. And God's purpose was to have them not do all the phony outward stuff so that they would think about the fact that this was what was brought on by their own sin. And he had already told them. Again, folks, the whole of Scripture is all here. It all ties together. Now, I also want to look at how God describes his temple in the city of Jerusalem. I don't know if you caught it or not, but for me, as I was just kind of looking through this and praying over it, it seemed interesting. In verse um, 21, God tells Ezekiel, Say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will profane my sanctuary. Now look at how he describes his sanctuary. The pride of your power, the delight of your eyes, and the yearning of your soul. Oh, and your sons and daughters. I'm also going to put them to death too. But look at how he describes the temple. He says, I am going to profane my sanctuary. Remember, we just saw in Leviticus 26, God said that that was one of the things he would do. But he describes the sanctuary as the Jews' pride of their power, the delight of their eyes, and the yearning of their soul. Jump over to verse 25. As for you, son of man, surely on the day when I take from them their stronghold, their joy and glory, the delight of their eyes, there it is again, and their soul's desire, and also their sons and daughters. So again, describing the temple and the city, but mainly the temple, God describes the temple as the pride of their power, the delight of their eyes, the yearning of their soul. And again, he says, it's their stronghold, their joy and glory, the delight of their eyes, and their soul's desire. Now, as I read that, I had to be honest and say, I don't think they ever felt that way about it. Did you ever get the picture that the Jews really respected and felt that way about the temple? Because if you remember our study, they were having, uh, kings were coming in and offering 
stuff to other gods in the temple and all this stuff. They're letting other nations come in and carry stuff away. It just seemed weird to me that God would describe the temple in this way as being the attitude of the Jews when all through their history, they hadn't really treated it in that way. And then I noticed a couple of things. One is, God does use sarcasm. And when you parallel this with God speaking through Jeremiah, go to Jeremiah chapter 7. You'll see how it all of a sudden becomes clear and makes sense. Jeremiah chapter 7, look at verses 1 through 15. It says, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house, and proclaim there this word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. So now, where is Jeremiah told to stand when he makes this prophecy that I'm about to finish reading? In the gate of the Lord's house, which is the temple. He stands in the entrance of the temple, and, and God says, Amend your ways, and I'll let you dwell in this place, and do not trust in these deceptive words. And then God quotes the deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Did you catch the sarcasm? Don't trust in these de deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner or the fatherless or the widow or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go out after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered. Only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel of my people Israel, and now because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, when I spoke to you persistently and you did not listen, and when I called and you did not answer, therefore I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust, and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers as I did to Shiloh, and I'll cast you out of my sight, and I'll cast out all your kinsmen and the offspring of Ephraim. God had Jeremiah stand in the temple and say, Guys, don't think for a second that you're going to be okay because this is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. I'm watching you. You're going out and you're worshiping all these other Baals. You're doing all the things I say not to do. And then you come into the house and say, we're delivered by God. And your worship is phony and false. You act like this is the power of your pride. You act like this is your stronghold. You act like this is the desire of your eyes. You act like this is the delight of your eyes. But it's not. Now, Ezekiel's wife was the delight of his eyes. And that's why it was such a shocking thing that he would not wail or mourn or weep. But was the temple really the delight of these people's eyes, the pride of their power, and everything that they said that God said it was? Not to them. He was using their words 
what they called it. But he said, I'm going to destroy it because I know you really don't feel that way about it. Go ahead, Jeff. Is it possible that the delight was in the building but not in the presence of God? You keep looking at my notes. you got to stop coming over my house. That's exactly it, Jeff. That's exactly where we're going. All of these things should have been true about how they felt about the temple. This is literally where we're going next. All these things should have been true about how they felt about the temple, but not because of the building itself, but because of who dwelt there. Go with me to Psalm 27. Jeff, you brought out exactly the, the reason. In Psalm, let's now read Psalm 27 and let everything we've looked at so far all come together and look at the proper attitude when it talks about the house of the Lord. David writes and says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Who is the focus here? The Lord. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Do you see it? Isn't that one of those words we just heard describing the temple? Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that, I will, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, or false witnesses have risen against, risen, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. How many of us over the years have heard the quote, one thing I've asked the Lord, one thing I'll seek of, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Remember, haven't you heard people quoting that? They, we've, I've seen it on, on church buildings. Oh, that I might dwell in the temple of the house of the Lord. And we have this weird thinking that that building is all of a sudden holy and sacred. The Bible says that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Remember what Jesus said to the woman at the well? When she said, hey, you know, you Jews say that we're supposed to worship in Jerusalem. Our father's Samaritan. Father's told us where to worship up here in uh, Samaria. And where is it? And what did Jesus say? A day is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. It's not going to be the place. Yet we grew up in generations where the scripture on the wall said, we want to just stay in the house of the Lord. And folks, let me just tell you straight up and straight out, after having been a pastor for over 30 years, it has been a grief to me to hear Christians talk about the sanctuary and then watch how they treat each other. 
Not only just in that place, but everywhere else. And can you not see how God today would say to many of our churches, you talk about the building. You talk about the sanctuary. Well, you can't bring a soda in there because that's the house of the Lord. But how do you treat each other? Are you looking to other things besides me for your provision? And then you come in here and say, we're delivered. David, when he said, this is my desire, the one thing I've asked the Lord, that I, the one thing that I'm going to seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, they should have put the rest of the scripture on the wall to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temples. Yes, at that time, that's where God dwelt. But where does he dwell now? In us. Folks, some of you have got to let go of the sanctuary and embrace the temple. We've got to stop thinking that God is in that place when he's everywhere, but he's come to indwell us. The temple had become their pride and their stronghold, but they had forgotten the God whom it represented. It's interesting, that attitude continued in the people of Israel. Go to Matthew 24. Look at verses 1 and 2. This is a different temple now that had been built. Or renovated, if you will. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to the point to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Even in the time of Jesus, the disciples even who've been walking with Jesus for three years, they come to show Jesus how impressive and how beautiful the temple was. And Jesus says, it'll be leveled. Why would God going to level it again? Same reason. Same reason. They had forgotten the God of the temple. I'm going to ask you a question tonight. And I want you to spend some time meditating on this. Don't just do a quick answer. I really want you to meditate on this. Do you rejoice in your salvation? Or the God of your salvation? Are you just happy you're saved? Or do you rejoice in your Savior? Because a lot of Christians, unfortunately, have fallen into that same mindset of, well, thank God I'm saved. So have your salvation become your stronghold? The pride of your power? The delight of your eyes? Or has Jesus... Is Jesus the pride of your eyes, the light of your eyes, the pride of your power, your stronghold? You understand the difference? You see what I'm saying? Many of us are just resting in our salvation when our salvation is a person. It's because of his blood. It's because you're in Christ. It's because of him. I want to challenge you in your personal walk with the Lord to learn to develop your relationship with Jesus. To get to know him better. All through the scriptures, I'm not going to take the time tonight to do it. All through the scriptures, the 
the apostles kept saying, we've heard of your love for the Lord Jesus and your love for each other. Here's our prayer for you, that you get to know him more and that your love for each other would increase. Go with me real quick to Ephesians chapter 1. Start in verse 15. It says, for this reason. Now, in order, because of the fact that he says for this reason, we have to touch on what he's just said. In the previous verses, Paul's just been talking about the fact that we've been given this awesome salvation, these, all these spiritual blessings in Christ. That's the big thing. If you want to have some fun, uh, go real quick and look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in, in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Jump down to uh, in the end of verse 6. In the beloved. Look at verse 7. In him. Look at verse, uh, the end of verse 9. In Christ. Look at the uh, middle of verse 10. In him. Look at the beginning of verse 11. In him. Look at verse 13. In him. All the way through, he's been talking about this awesome salvation we've been given, but it's in Jesus. It's because of Jesus and we're in Jesus. It's because we're in him that we have this awesome salvation. For this reason, because of all these in hymns that I just talked about, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I don't cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He's called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe. And then he goes on and describes how awesome that power is. Did you catch that? Paul said, we've been given this awesome salvation and all these spiritual blessings because we're in Christ. Because of this, here's my prayer for you now. That you would grow in your knowledge of him. That the spirit of God would give you wisdom and revelation so that you would know him even more. That you would understand the hope to which he's called you. The glorious inheritance that we have. And his mighty power that's available to us. In other words, Paul said, if you say to me, I'm just glad I'm saved. Paul says, so what? Because if your confidence is in your salvation and not in Jesus, you might not have salvation. You might be like the Jews whose confidence was in the temple. This is the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. I'm saved. I'm saved. I'm saved. Well, the Bible says that if you're really saved, you're going to be growing and wanting to know him more. It's going to be a natural outflow. I'm not going to have you turn there, but if you want to look later on at 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and following, he says, add to your faith these virtues, knowledge, purity, self-control. But look at chapter 3 of Ephesians close with this tonight. Look at verse 14. For this reason, this is why I'm praying this prayer. I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, 
and that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what's the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And I love his prayer at the end. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. I'm going to ask you a question. I don't want you to answer it out loud. I just want you to answer it to yourself and allow the Spirit of God to speak to you. What's Jesus been talking to you about? In your personal relationship with Jesus. Because we love to talk about how it's not religion, it's a relationship. Okay, great. That's That's a good answer. In your relationship with Jesus, what's Jesus been talking to you about? What are you and he dealing with? What's he been showing you from his word as he speaks to you through his spirit? I've had it easy. Cancer will get your attention. Paul said, I want to know Christ. Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. I want to know Christ. Forgetting what's behind and straightening toward what is ahead. But let me finish quoting Philippians 3.10. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of sharing in his suffering. We run from trouble. The Bible says that's one of the greatest ways to grow in our walk with the Lord. So tonight, as we close, I'm going to let you out early tonight. You've been good. Don't fall into that same trap because you had the same flesh that the Jews had. Don't fall into that same trap where they were thinking, the temple of the Lord. And God, we're his people. We're good. But God knew that their hearts really weren't for him. These people honor me with their lips, as Jesus said, but their hearts are far from me. Let me ask you a question. Are you one of those people that more interested in the sanctuary than the God of the sanctuary or the God of the temple that lives within you? Do you rejoice more in your salvation than in the God of your salvation? Between now and when he comes to get us, I want you to care less about the building and care more about the Jesus who supersedes the building. I love you. We'll see you in a couple weeks.